0: Praise God, you guys. Uh, you know, uh, Chad was making a joke about, you know, he thought maybe John Heber was conducting the choir because they got a Keith Green song in there, and I thought it's funny because I mentioned Keith Green at the beginning of my message with the, the folks that were at the Sunrise Service and congratulated them for being up that early and up at the Sunrise Service before the sun's even up, you know, and I said that's because uh, uh, Keith Green, he's got some convicting music, Amen. <laughs> That's one reason I love to listen to Keith Green. He's been my favorite artist for long, lot, many, many years. And one of his lines in a song called Asleep in the Light, which warns about not being asleep in the light, is about how Jesus rose from the dead, and you can't even get out of bed, you know. And a friend of mine, when he was a new Christian, one of my friends I led to Christ, and Mike, if you're listening from Montana, I love you, bro. He said, man, I was listening to that Keith Green guy he told me about, and I was laying in bed, I slept in, I felt so bad when I heard that song, I gotta get up, you know. Well, man, Jesus did rise from the dead, and you know what? I really this message has been it's, it was a huge message. It was way too big for today. In fact, I have a bunch of stuff I had Tony do uh, that that I got together, and then I gave to Tony to turn into some video clips. That I gave to Jonathan that I was going to air today on the Shroud of Turin. I'm not going to be able to get that in tonight, and I'm not gonna, or today. Maybe if we go tonight, I can, you know, but I'm not going to be able to get that in this morning, but I'm hoping to do that next week or another time because it is a blow mind, guys. It's a trip. I mean, there's so many evidences, but the Shroud of Turin, they're like, this is not all 33 experts or guys that went to examine it first to this day are like, there's no paint on it, you know, and it'd been a mystery. Now they start to understand what's going on there that it was, well, you have to be there next week. Anyway, it's just a trip, but I wanted to do that, and I wanted to talk about the eyewitness accounts and so forth and all these different evidences that Christ has risen. But I had so many things I wanted to share with you guys, and I knew I had to kind of you know, edit it down so we could get done on time. And I was like, man, Lord, I just—I actually was one of the toughest messages. I've done a lot of messages on the resurrection, you know, probably 40 or 50 on the resurrection through the years. And, but I always try to change it up a little bit, and I thought... And then I thought, man, I'm going to hone in on one specific aspect the most that I've never taught on before that I think is so amazing. Because I myself was so encouraged by it. And I thought, you know, if you guys, if I'm encouraged, a lot of times I think others will be encouraged. And I was praying about it. And uh, last night, I was kind of wrestling with the Lord. Okay, Lord, please burn on my heart, you know. And I probably got up like 15 times, you know. That's one reason. When I did go to bed, I kept getting up and writing on a little notepad, little notes, because I kept seeking the Lord and praying. And I didn't have peace until a certain point. But I didn't know what to call it, Them message. I never gave it a title. And then Jonathan asked, and I said, give me a minute, you know. And, just, and then I said, you know what? This will be the title, Everyday Evidence for the Resurrection. Everyday Evidence for the Resurrection. In other words, and it's, it's going to be hard to kind of understand where I'm going with this, but until I get into it, then you'll be like, oh, I get it. But there's everyday evidence. Every time you see a lot of things in our world that we live in, it's evidence of the Resurrection. And I think that's very, very interesting. And you'll see what I'm talking about in a little bit. I personally think the greatest evidence of the resurrection is Christ's prophetic word along with the eyewitness accounts. And this morning I got into some of the eyewitness accounts briefly. I'm not really going to get into the eyewitness accounts so much right now. I got in, maybe spent 12, 15 minutes this morning on that. But I think that's just so powerful because it's people that actually sealed their sealed their their testimony in their own blood. Amen? Now, if someone thinks they believe something and dies for it, but they didn't really see it and just thinks that, that's not necessarily a strong testimony. But if someone claims to be an eyewitness of what happened and then dies for it, that's greater testimony, greatest, greater eyewitness testimony than you get in the average court of law, by far, than 99.99999% of courts of law that are considered trustworthy testimonies, especially when you get two or three people, right? Well, we do know that Christ's apostles, his disciples, uh, gave their lives, were beaten and continued to visit areas and share the gospel, even though they were being flogged and thrown in prison saying, like, Peter's better obey God than man and things of that nature. You know, Paul and all those guys, and I don't want to get into the details of their testimonies because I want to get a little bit deeper than I was able to this morning with regard to uh, this everyday evidence that you can look around and say, wow, that's evidence of the resurrection." <laughs> It's all over the place. It's everywhere. Once you once we go through this, I think you'll be able to see that, and it just encouraged me a lot. So I thought, you know, uh, there's a lot of evidence. And when when uh, H. G. Wells, the famous world historian, was asked who what was it, you know what person or or you know uh, who left the greatest legacy in world history, uh, the non-Christian scholar H. G. Wells said. By this test, Jesus Christ stands first. No doubt about it. More books written about Jesus than anybody, right? More songs sung about Jesus than anybody. The Bible is the best selling book, not barely, but by far and away. Nothing will ever catch it, I believe. Uh, it's, it's amazing. Our very, you know, night or 2023. The very marked dates and times that we mark are based in the Western world and Europe and over here and so many countries are based on Christ before Christ and the common era. And it's just amazing when you think about it. And, and I think it's neat because the, the, uh, one of the founders, one of the main founders of Harvard School of Law was Simon Greenleaf and he wrote a whole book about the resurrection and he wrote a he he his his law books, which I think are uh, quite interesting because he's considered is considered the greatest the law of evidence. It's called a treatise on the law of evidence. It's been called the greatest single authority in the entire literature of legal procedure, and the U.S. judicial system is still based on mostly on his law books as far as any scholastic, scholastic lawyer. And Simon Greenleaf studied the resurrection and and what happened after the claim that Christ rose from the dead. And he came to the conclusion, wrote a whole book on it, because if the evidence took him another way, he would have rejected Christ. But he looked at the evidence, and he said, Christ is risen. The evidence shows that he's risen. He didn't think it was a possibility, but that it was. In fact, he said it would have been impossible for the disciples to persist with their conviction that Jesus had risen if they hadn't actually seen the risen Christ. Okay, that's because these guys were hiding in John chapter 20 behind the locked doors, fearing for their lives because their master was just crucified. And what happened? And all our hopes, and he talked about this coming kingdom. It's all, and then Jesus appears to him, right? And then they're bold as lions, man. Those same disciples, man, are out on the streets, not fearing crucifixion. In fact, Peter would later be crucified upside down, telling the authorities, I don't want to be crucified right upside up like my Lord because I denied him. I want to be crucified in a different way, and they crucified him upside down. What motivation would you have to preach a resurrection when you're being flogged and whipped and poor like your master, having no place to lay your head so often and stoned to death, death almost and left for dead like Paul? What, what motivation would you have to do that? They weren't making a bunch of money, anything like that, except that they'd seen the resurrected Christ, especially when they turned from cowards, right, to just lions for the gospel, you know, and I love one of, my favorite, one of my favorite testimonies about the resurrected Christ. Some are like some of Paul's in Acts 26. I love that. It's awesome. T- uh, Doubting Thomas, just stick your fingers in my wounds, Thomas, you know. <laughs> the Lord of me, the God of me, falls down. But one of my favorites is in the book Revelation, and in chapter 1, the Apostle John says in verse 9, that I, John, your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. He says, I was in the Isle of Patmos because he was in the Isle of Patmos because he was exiled there by Domitian in the 90s when he was pretty old in his 80s or 90s himself, age-wise, because he would not stop preaching the gospel. And Domitian, when you read about the emperor Domitian, Nero was killing Christians. Well, Domitian was also terrorizing Christians. And he put him there. and and, And John says, I was in the Isle of Patmos because of the word of God, because of the testimony of Jesus. And he says, I was in the spirit of the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And he says, I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. In the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his foot, and girded about the paths with a golden girdle. And his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet were like a fine brass as if they burned in a furnace. Wow. And he goes on to say that he had uh, his voice was the sound of many waters. It sounded like many waters, right? In his right hand, he held seven stars. Now his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance shined like the sun in the fullness of his strength. So what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus said this was a light brighter than the sun. And John says, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not. I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. And he said, The mystery of the seven stars, which thou sawest in my right hand, the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars, the angels of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches, right? The things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. And John was just blown away. And guess what? Man, do you think his faith was encouraged? He didn't need that to happen, but the Lord encouraged him, appeared to him. He didn't have to, and gave him the book of Revelation. What an amazing book. What an amazing testimony. Now, it's amazing, brothers and sisters, because these eyewitnesses in most cases with the apostles, gave their very lives as testimonies that they'd seen the resurrected Christ. And uh, I think I want to share with you (laughs) evidence of the resurrection that you don't typically hear, okay, but I hope you use all the time. And it's something that Jesus said, and we hear it said, I say it, but two things came together for me in this last couple weeks or so with this passage I'm going to share with you, which was just part of my message. But I thought, Lord, this is amazing. When you see what he's saying here, it shows you that there's every day of the resurrection, anytime you just look around and think about what's going on in the world that we live in, amazing every day that can constantly remind you that Jesus rose from the dead. And I thought, wow, I've given so many through the years, testified of so much of the evidence of his resurrection. Primarily, folks, I did a whole message a few years ago called The Conversion of Saul the Terrorist. Saul was his Jewish name, Paul was his Latin name, because the Jews who had Roman citizenship had two names typically, right, their their native name and then their their Roman name, and then he started going by Paul, his new name, or not really his new name, but it's interesting uh, what a powerful conversion he had, a lot of evidence just in his life, writing 13 out of the 20, that's about half the books of the New Testament. This guy who's having Christians killed, dragging them out of their homes, having Stephen's People's clothes put at his feet while they stoned Stephen to death. Letters from the Sanhedrin. As a member of the Sanhedrin, one of the guys, probably the main guy in charge of having Christians killed, dragging them out of their homes, forcing them to deny Christ and blaspheme. Paul says he was so hurt over that. so I he called himself the chief of sinners. But boom, his life changed. What does that? Now Paul's being stoned to death on all these other things, you know, and shipwrecked and beaten. He goes, why would I do this with human motives if I didn't see the resurrected Christ? Right? Well, In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in the first few verses, Paul said, I declare unto you what you you have received and that which I've handed down to you. Okay, Paul had seen the resurrected Christ. He spent three years in Arabia, according to the book of Galatians, before he even conferred with any human beings. And after three years, he went and talked to Peter, had a private meeting with him, and made sure, what's your history of the resurrection? Because you live with Jesus. And Peter shares. And it's there where he receives what's the kerygma, and that's a, a word we use of the, the Greek kerygma for the preaching, the message. And that is, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I, 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 I give to you what I received. But of first of all importance, the most important thing, that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he says the, 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 the kerygma or the message, he's saying, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast and have not believed to no purpose, that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Amen? That he was buried, and that he rose again from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. And that's amazing. And the Jewish, and Jews, just part of a day was considered a day. You can call it 24 hours a day, or you can call it just part of a day a day. Well, three days and three nights he'd rise on the third day. Guess what? Jesus was crucified, and they buried him before the Sabbath. That was one, that was the first day. Then when night falls, because the Jews didn't start their days in the morning, they start them at night. As soon as night falls, right, what happens? Then you've got the second day, then Light, Saturday light comes, that's the second day. And then Sunday night, that's the third day. When it's nighttime, that day starts. And he actually rises before dawn on the third day. And it's such a powerful picture. But I think it's interesting when you think of the fact, one of the evidence of the resurrection. And now, the, this evidence that I'm going to share with you, you can, you can, see, you can put some holes in it. Because I try to put holes. I try to say, what, what kind of holes might someone use if I'm witnessing them? Because there's a lot of different evidence. And when you present something in a court of law, there's some things that are slam dunk things you think, right? Fingerprints or DNA evidence or what have you that are more slam dunk eyewitness accounts. But some evidence is stronger than others. So when I look at the evidence of Jesus' resurrection, I look at it and I say, okay, how could you put, put holes in Jesus' prophecies about his resurrection? Because Jesus called it. He called it. He called it ahead of time. They'd rise from the dead. If I was a skeptic, how would I try to get around that? And then I thought, hmm, you know what? Because I was a skeptic before I became a Christian. and But now I don't think, how as a skeptic, how could I not? I, I, you can never move. You can cut off my arms or whatever. I could, I, I could deny I, that was my hand if you cut it off. Quick, I could deny the resurrection of Christ and who he is. He's made himself so real to me. But I like to do this to myself to, 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 to realize that, you know, that, uh, we're supposed to cast down imagination to every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God when we're witness to people, right? So it can come up, well, you know, regarding this, his prophecies, somebody might say this, that, or the other. Well, I want to address that because it's quite amazing because the everyday evidence you talk about vouchsafes, proves, confirms, I believe, absolutely, uh, Jesus' prophecies about his own death, burial, and resurrection. He told the apostles. In fact, it would go over their heads because they wanted him to be this earthly king. Remember how Judas got it all wrong? Judas was like, and then all of a sudden, Jesus is, they're going to arrest him. They're going to try to crucify him. So, Jesus, I'm going to cash in then. Well, he wanted a king that would kick the booty of the, of the Romans, right? And if that wasn't God's plan, okay, when he comes back, he's going to kick a bunch of booty throughout the, throughout the world. But he wants to die for the sins of the world first, give everybody a chance to get, come to Christ, amen? So, what's crazy about this is he told the apostles that he'll be crucified. Then he'll rise again. He said, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to hand it over to the Gentiles. He said, I'm going to be flogged. And I'm going to be whipped crucified, but I'll rise again on the third day. He told them straight up. And he said things like, you know, in John chapter 2, verses 19 through 21, he says, destroy this temple and in three days, I'll rise it up. And they said, it took 38 years to build the temple. Like he's talking about the temple in in Jerusalem. And And then the Holy Spirit says in verse 21, but he spoke of the temple of his body. He would rise it up. And in John chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. I lay my life down for my sheep. But I have the power, the authority to take it back up again. And he says that again later in the Gospel of John. Wow. I mean, he's making it just very, very clear, you know, that he will be killed, he'll be crucified, and he'll rise again. Now, that would just be so hard to understand because crucifixion was something the Jews really understood because Jews had been crucified by the Roman state. In fact, there were probably several people too right next to Jesus, but they'd often line the streets. Sometimes there were hundreds of people being crucified at once because of an insurrection, what have you, of Jews just hanging on crosses. This is what's going to happen to you if you cross the state of Rome. Well, how can you come back from a crucifixion, right? Especially when the spear is thrust into his side. Well, Jesus gave some really interesting prophecies, but when people say something, sometimes People misunderstand, too. So some of you who are ba- baseball buffs in a 18... or 18. One of the leagues started in the 1800s. Another baseball league... I forget which... What, what, some of you baseball buffs. One national started in one century. Uh, American started in the, the other. Can't remember which is which. But they're pretty old. But, you know, right now there's kind of talk about how Mike Trout... Um, The Angels is probably going to be the best baseball player that ever lived if he could put put up these numbers that he's been putting up the last so many years. But then he got a teammate named Shohei Otani, Otani, right, who's, like, amazing as well. He actually pitches like Babe Ruth did and hits homers and stuff. He got an MVP, what was it, last year or the year before? Recently. And now these guys on the same team, they bat right next to each other, right? It'd be fun to watch a Dodger game against the Angels, you know. Although some, like Chad says, they shouldn't call themselves the Los Angeles Angels. That's not true. <laughs> but it's interesting when you think about it, because Babe Ruth is the one they have to pass, according to most people, because Babe Ruth is considered the best player ever. Because he pitched incredible games, his pitching was amazing. Hit all these homers per at bats. His at bat ratio to home runs is amazing, and. He'd be hard to beat. But when you think of Babe Ruth's most, most memorable moments in history, it's in at Wrigley Field. He's playing in Chicago Wrigley Field, and it's 4-4 tie in the middle of the World Series. I think it was game three. And he has a 2-2 count, and the game's on the line, and guess what? He points his bat out, and according to his teammate Lou Gehrig and others that were there, he pointed to... the the field, I'm gonna hit a homer. He called it to the, to the pitcher, like I'm hitting a homer, because the catcher was talking smack. Bam! He hits a homer. So it's gone down. I mean, the news cut, it was all over the place. Well, it seems very simple what happened there, but it doesn't because other people say no. He pointed his bat. Everybody agrees he pointed his bat because you, you know got the deal going. No, he's pointed the pitcher. You know, he's telling the pitcher, don't throw, don't quick pitch me again. In other words, don't, like, right after you throw a pitch, get ready and throw it before I'm in the box or ready. And now, guess what? There's a dispute among some baseball buffs, and it's been written about ad agnosium, you know, ad infinitum, over and over again of what really happened there. Well, guess what? I don't know. (laughs) And I'm glad my salvation doesn't depend upon it. But one thing I thought about, do you think any of those guys who said, he pointed the outfield, he's going to hit a homer, or said, no, he pointed to the pitcher and said, don't quick pitch me. Do you think they'd go into a court of law and seal their testimony by giving up their lives? Any of them? No. But Jesus', but Jesus apostles did. So many of them and so many of his disciples. And according to 1 Corinthians 15, over 500 people saw the resurrected Christ. And Paul says, many of them are alive, to, most of them are alive to this day. That's you can talk to them, like Paul, you know. And that's powerful evidence because they're sealing their testimony in their blood. But Jesus is prophesying that he will give up his life. That's, that's what's amazing. He's prophesying that he'll give up his life and that he'll rise again. But one of the times I mentioned a few different passages where he says that, but one that I don't, didn't mention yet, which I think is really profound when you look at its context, I think really really helpful for you and me when we're witnessing to people. And I think it when you look at the argument aside from the broader context of what Jesus is saying here, it's a powerful argument. But when you add in a dimension that is easy for us to miss, and I missed it too for years. I'm like, what in the world? This is crazy. This is, a great, this is one of the evidences I use, but now it's like a slam dunk evidence, you know? It's one of those evidences I use because it's there and it kind of, with the other evidence, it just becomes overwhelming. But this piece of evidence by itself is quite overwhelming. And that is Jesus, the scribes of the day, okay? The nomikos, uh, uh, in the Greek, the, the gramitus, these scribes, the scholars of the day were questioning Jesus, you know? They knew he was doing, some of them, like, like Nicodemus, the teacher of the Jews. And John 3 says, we know that you're from God because no one could do these signs except God be with him. But they continued to try to reject him. And and they said to him things, the Pharisees and scribes were questioning him at this point in in Matthew 12. But it's interesting, earlier in Matthew 12, he's gotten into it with them already. And he warns them about the sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because he's doing miracles they can't deny. But they're saying, it must be a demon. So instead of saying that miracles aren't, Happening, they have to admit the they, they, there's there's dead people, the people that were dead that are walking. He rose a few people from the dead. He has the power over life. Okay, uh, he, healed, he healed the blind, you know, the lepers, the deaf, all these things. So they couldn't deny it. So he said it must be a demon in him. And then he warned them about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in Matthew chapter 12. And he warned those who had said that to make the tree good or evil. Still gave them a choice to make the right decision even after they said that. But he warned them. Now it's quite interesting. Because a little bit later in Matthew chapter 12, something really fascinating happens. He says to them, he gives them, he's done all these miracles, but he gives them one main sign that's irrefutable. They wanted like an irrefutable sign. So he's going to give them an irrefutable sign. It says in verse, if you go to chapter 12, verse 38, then some of the scribes and Pharisees told Jesus, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he replied to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves a sign. Yet no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Because just as Jonah was in the stomach of the sea creature for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh. Now, this is interesting. So we think about that and we're like, yeah, that's, that's powerful. What a, that's a powerful illustration, you know. Jonah in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights. But there's more to what he's saying here. And my mind goes right to that right there. And then my mind goes to the next part when I'm thinking of repentance and how it's critical for salvation and so forth. But if you look at it as being tied to the sign that he's going to give them, it's very eye-opening. Listen to what he says next. The men of Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, the great empire, right? And Assyria was a powerful empire before Babylon and so forth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment, Jesus said to these Jewish leaders. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment and condemn the people living today because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. But look, something greater than Jonah is here. Isn't that interesting? Something greater than Jonah is here. Someone, for sure, Jesus. But something's going on that's greater than Jonah here. And this is a sign I'm going to give you. And it's tied to what happened with Jonah. is going to happen to Jesus. But it's going to be on a greater level. It's going to be because the person is greater. Now, this is fascinating. Uh, first of all, you have to ask the question, is God powerful enough to preserve a body inside a big sea creature? Can he do that? I don't know if God could actually do that. Of course, He could do that. If He created the universe, that's easy. Amen. That's like easy. That's one of those easy things. I like what it, God's bringing judgments on the Egyptians, and it says it's the finger of God. I'm like, whoa, man! I, the finger does that stuff. Ten plagues. What's it like when He flexes his bicep? You know, God's pretty gnarly, right? So this is something He could do with His finger, and uh, it's quite interesting. And but He can't cause you to live in someone else like that. Any of you women been pregnant here? Everybody here lived in a body. Unless you're like a test tube baby. I want to meet you and give you a hug. That's cool. you know. But everybody lived in a, a body. And also it's quite interesting because when you think about it, uh, some of the phrases used in the book of Jonah, when you look at it, in chapter 2, for instance, he says, I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars were around me forever but you have brought up my life from the pit. Interesting. Oh, Lord, my God, while I was fainting away. Interesting. I remembered the Lord. Then the Lord commanded uh, the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto dry ground, or to the dry land. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, arise, and go to Nineveh. Now, it's very interesting. Fainting, arising, you know, of course, when this is being written, the prophet is not even realizing that this is all a picture of Christ. But it's interesting, the term for pit, the phrase is used of, like, the same phrase is used in the Hebrew for the belly of Sheol, which was considered the spiritual realm when someone actually had died. Uh, the, the, the word nephesh used for his soul and then fainting, okay, uh, uh, it's kind of interesting because that word Hebrew is used of someone taking their last breath. It's kind of interesting. And the word arise is interesting because Jesus in Mark 5.41 uses that word when he raises Jairus' daughter Jiraius daughter from the dead. In Mark 5.41, it says, Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, uh, Talitha kum, uh, which translated means little girl, I say to you, get up. Or stand up. Someone who's dead. It's used for rising someone from the dead. Uh, am I saying that Jonah was actually probably dead in the sea creature? I'm not positive. I can see it either way. Either way, it was a miracle, right? Either way, God had to do a miracle. Some atheists will say, you know, how, you can't live in the belly of a big sea creature for three days. That's impossible. You know, a lot of these, you know, how could that happen? Well, we're not saying it was a natural phenomenon someone preaches natural phenomena they're missing the whole point it's a picture of christ's resurrection which was a supernatural phenomena amen which is quite interesting when you think about it now it's interesting could you now his body because jesus in his resurrected form still has scars when you read the scripture amen his face could actually still have some marks on it okay some of the scars to one degree or another uh we don't know how much But we know his hands and his feet because he told Thomas and his side he could stick his fingers into the wounds. So God didn't fully restore him because he wanted to preserve his love, to show his love for us for all eternity, which is really beautiful, isn't it? Now, it's interesting because, but can you imagine him being vomited? You're sitting there on the beach, you know, maybe you're proposing to your bride. And all of a sudden this whale comes up, you're like, that's a trip, right? And you're just like... "Ah." and it's like burping, you're like, it has gas, and you're laughing, and all of a sudden pukes this dude out, right, and he walks out, and his body has been in this gastric juice for who knows how long, I mean, that would mess you up, and if he died, God restored him, but probably like Jesus, left some scars there to get their attention, amen, and then he steps forth, and he says, repent, and you realize what just happened to him, you're like, tell me more, you know, you know, so, when you think about it, it's quite crazy what that must have been like. You know, I'm like, wow. And guess what? They had 120,000 kids there. It says, because Jonah didn't want to go, remember? Jonah didn't want to, Jonah didn't, God said, go to the Ninevites. He's like, no, I'm going to Tarshish, which is Spain, the opposite direction on ship. Right? God allows a huge storm shaking the ship. It's just going to just be destroyed. And of course, Jonah He's thrown overboard, basically, and this all goes down and God takes him the opposite direction, which is really interesting to me because uh, the people repented. Nineveh repented. And now Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because the Ninevites were incredibly wicked, okay? I mean, we're told in the scripture, when you look at Nahum and so forth, you see that they're called the people of bloodshed in the scripture, And I've been to the British Museum a few times. And I've done that not to, I didn't fly to Britain to go to the British Museum, but I'd have layovers there when you go to Israel. Two or three times I was able to go in the British Museum. And when I've been there, every time I want to go to the Nineveh site. It's got those pictographs, you know, just of their history they've preserved of it. And it shows you just the brutal way they treated people. And it's crazy. And some of the ways they treated people, they're not all in the pictograph, but some are, where they'd bury you under the ground except your head would stick up. So then animals could ravage you and eat you, you know? Pretty, pretty sick people, you know? At the, you know, they were need repentance. Uh, they would take their captives by fish hooks. The women as well, big old fish hooks and stick them so they'd have to keep up or they'd have their face ripped off, you know? They'd flail you and they'd stick you on poles that would slowly go down as you sat on the, as you're on the pole and you couldn't get off. And as you Moved, you'd go down further, and you'd impale you, and get in your, your your heart. You're you're dead. If you went to invade them, the Syrian Empire was radical, man. <laughs> All kinds of skeletons of people they murdered across their walls to cause fear and trembling. So when Jonah is told, and the Syrians were enemies of Israel, Sennacherib was one of their enemies, and was. And later on, not after this, you know, he'll all, we'll see the Assyrians take the northern tribes captive, the ten northern tribes captive, before Judah went captive to the Babylonians. Now, it's interesting. So Jonah, he doesn't want these guys to get a chance. He wants God to just judge them. I'm not going to give them, a, I don't want to give them a chance to repent. He goes the other way. We know that's the issue because God says, you know, that's a long story, but God late, later says to him, you, you know, you should have compassion on those people, you know. He talks to him about it a couple different times. Once at the end of the book and once earlier that there's 120,000 that, you know, don't know their left hand from the right, Jonah. And it's, quite, quite, kind of, it's really interesting because he doesn't want to go there, but he goes there. And there, the land was a total of 60 miles around. We're t- talking about Nineveh. Walls, 100 feet high, okay? Crazy, powerful. But it's interesting because the Jews were called in Isaiah to be a light to the Gentiles, Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7. They were supposed to be a light to the Gentile nations, that God wanted to save them too. Remember, God chose Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, that through him and through his seed, right, the nations of the world would be blessed, amen? But what happened, a lot of the Jews looked at, hey, we got the law, we have a special relationship with God, we're the chosen ones, you know. God wants us. We're it. And they became ingrate, ingrates, you know, where they focused on themselves. And it became very, very heartbreaking. Uh, and guess what? Jesus stuns. He stuns them by telling these religious Jews, the leaders, the scholars, that I'm giving you the sign of Jonah. And not that he just came out of the big sea monster after three days. who knows what kind of creature it was. What specifically, some say a whale, some say some other sea creature. We don't know, it doesn't specify, but uh, something big enough to gulp him down. Three days and three nights, you know, and Jesus was in the heart of the earth, by the way. His body was buried, and then his spirit went into the heart of the earth to uh, set captivity captive, those in Abraham's bosom, or in what was called also paradise, next to the bad side of Hades, right? He set captives free in his train. Now, it's interesting, because when we look at the narrative... I think it's fascinating, this is what's fascinating to me, is Jesus is saying, very clearly that the men of Nineveh, the ones that repented, they're going to rebuke you. They're going to condemn you, because one greater than Jonah is here with you now. And you, they repented at Jonah's preaching, which by the way, shows you that the Lord does want people to repent. Amen. And that he does want people that don't repent and reject him to be saved. Amen? Don't let anybody tell you the opposite of that, okay? God loves you. Don't wonder if he loves you or not. He wants you to repent, though. He even gave Jezebel space to repent in Revelation chapter 2. Amen? And she was leading his servants to commit fornication and eating sacrifice idols and so forth. And he still gave her space to repent. He loves each and every one of us. He loved the Ninevites. That's one thing we learned from that story. But Jesus lets them know that if the miracles, man, these miracles were so amazing that we're, they're, they're so condemned because the Ninevites are going to condemn you. But guess what? It brought great shame upon them to hear that. Why? It brought great shame for them to hear that because he's comparing them to Gentiles, who they called dogs. Who they felt were outside of salvation many, for the most part, unless they became Jews, and Jesus is saying, look, God's already saved Gentiles, and you guys are claiming to be so holy, you know? This is important to understand, because what's interesting about this, and I think it's fascinating when you look at this, is it's not just, it's not just the Ninevites. He mentions right after that, right after he says that in Matthew 12, he says, and the queen of the south, that was the queen of Sheba, who Solomon shared her wisdom with, right? Queen of Sheba from Ethiopia. She will rise up and condemn you. So now he takes another Gentile. What is Jesus doing? Do you follow this pattern? He's using Gentiles, and Gentiles to say they're gonna condemn you because they, they repented and you didn't. And then he ties this in with the sign of Jonah, because it was through what happened to Jonah that what happened? The Ninevites, that's the biggest, his main target. The Ninevites, all these people. And if there were 120,000 uh, kids, they estimate there are about a million people in Nineveh. you got a million people or so repenting. That's huge. But guess what? A million Gentiles repenting. Guess what? That's not big time, man. Because one greater than Jonah is coming here. And it's going to impact way more than one million Gentiles repenting. Are you with me? Because he's tying the effect of Jonah's preaching and the effect that it had on people even outside of Israel. He's saying, one like Jonah's coming here. And the sign I am giving you is that I will rise from the dead. And I will impact the Gentile world outside of Jerusalem and outside of Judea. And this is a blow mine because Jesus said that over and over again. Remember he described the kingdom of God spreading like a, just, just over and over again like a harvest field right throughout all the world. Preach the gospel to all the world as a witness to all the nations and the end will come. He constantly talked about the Gentiles. He, they got upset when he talked to the Samaritan, a half-breed. You know? This Phoenician woman, this, this Canaanite woman comes to him and he casts a demon out of her child. Even the disciples are like, get away. But Jesus was breaking these boundaries and was showing that he's inclusive to whoever will repent because God so loves the world. Amen? And he's letting them know there's something bigger going on that you guys are missing. And this is what blows me away, guys, is, and then I thought about it more after I gave the message this morning. I, I was in my office, and I thought, maybe I could doze off for 10, 15 minutes, but I had too much. I just kept wanting to add things and take things away. Steve, you know how that is, right? It's really hard. <laughs> I was like, okay, Lord, I'm just not going to doze off. Uh, but you'll get me through it, you know? If, I, if you come up to me afterwards, and I'm not preaching anymore because I've been praying about this, and I start to go like this, it's not because you're boring. It's just because I'm probably a little tired. Okay, but I'll be fine, you know? It's nothing. Uh, So anyway, it's just interesting. But when I was thinking about it, I thought, ooh, ah, whoa, Romans 11. What's Romans 11 about? God wants to point to the Gentiles to make the Jews jealous so that they will realize, look at these Gentiles that are saved and how much joy they have and confidence in, in our Messiah. Our Messiah is not really our Messiah. And they'll be jealous and come to Christ. Jesus is already setting the ball rolling with the Jews, with that. Are you with me? Because in Romans 11, verse 11, if you want to go there, you don't have to, we read, again, I ask, Paul says, did they stumble, meaning the Jews, so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? Meaning, when when all Israel saved, which he mentions later, I am talking to you. I am talking to you, uh, Gentile. I'm, I'm sorry. How much greater will their riches be with the, the full inclusion bring? I am talking to you Gentiles as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, when they rejected Christ, guess what? God used that for his good, bringing the world to him. What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So the plan in the New Testament was that God would start bringing the Gentiles in, Right? And the Gentiles already started getting, you know, repented. And Jesus used as an example with the sign of Jonah, okay? The the Gentiles believe Jonah. You aren't believing me. Guess what? I'm going to save the Gentiles and make my people jealous so they don't have to be condemned and they can come. So what would happen if Christ was the one who he claimed to be, that he would be resurrected, and not only would he be resurrected and his eyewitnesses would be his apostles, but guess what? If he gets resurrected from the dead, he proclaimed that his gospel would not be stopped and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it and that it would go throughout the entire world, and that would vouchsafe the fact that this message, which is, by the way, more people claim to be Christians, 2.3 or so billion, okay, or about a third of the planet, not that they're all Christians, but they claim to be more than any other religion, Islam and everything else by far and this is what really blows me away the whole throughout the world man i mean there's even muslim nations like right now iran is having they've been claiming the last couple of years the greatest revival on earth but you have europe dozens of countries throughout europe and then eastern europe right and and then the mediterranean world the gospel spread uh, hundred or more churches just in in israel of course uh, you've got the gospel in uh, throughout Africa, started Northern Africa in, in the early church period, actually, and now it's spread throughout Africa. It's spread throughout so many parts of the world: uh, Australia and you know uh, New Zealand, and here in the United States, Central America, South America. I've read that you know South America, or just even Brazil, has more per person. They have by far more uh, people going and sharing on the world mission field than any any country which is quite amazing. Uh, so you have all these communist China guys, you know, a 1000000 a They say maybe 100 million Christians there, okay? That's amazing, and a lot of these are for real Christians because they're hunted, okay? So it's just amazing when you think about it. Now, this is a crazy thing. What's the evidence? The evidence is if Jesus rose from the dead, he prophesied, this is important, He would rise from the dead, okay, the sign of Jonah. And he also prophesied that the Gentiles would turn to him throughout the world and that he would transform lives everywhere. And we see everyday witnesses of that. In fact, we see that the message of the gospel, and when Jesus' resurrection is preached, wherever that message is preached, whatever nation that that message is preached and accepted, those nations are transformed for the good. Unless it's tied to some kind of wicked political system that misuses it and in, in, in for political aspirations. Wherever true evangelical Christianity is embraced, the, the nation is beautified. Which is quite amazing when you think about it. So when they started spreading the gospel throughout the Roman Empire, that was the empire of the day. That was considered one of the greatest empires that ever existed. But guess what happened in the Roman Empire, man? They were hearing news that they'd never heard before because they were, so many of them were polytheistic. They believed in many gods. The Greeks, then the Romans took over from the Grecian Empire. Now the Romans are ruling. They kind of mix their gods together. Even Zeus, you know, you're starting to hear about this one true God who rose his son from the dead. And it's spreading because the original exact witnesses were his apostles who'd seen him risen and would not shut up no matter what you did to them. And it just spread like wildfire. And people started understanding, well, there's one God, and we're made in his image, and if he rose from the dead, and this this God's the true God, and he rose from the dead, then we're made in God's image, and we should probably treat each other differently, you know? Maybe we should obey uh, They're being told, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You mean he loves my slave that I beat? Yes, I do. You mean he loves that little girl that I just committed a phantasy on, I just killed her at the age of two? Yes, he does. And all of a sudden, people were convicted, and the Holy Spirit convicted them of, of sin and of righteousness, of judgment. And just like Nineveh came to repentance, the world around them, it says the book of Acts, was being turned upside down. But the chief god among the Greeks, and then the Romans would, you know, they'd use a counterpart, right, was Zeus. Zeus, if you read about Zeus, was he a good god? Zeus was a fornicator. He was a rapist. He raped his own family members, Okay? And the Bible says those who worship false gods become like them. So he wasn't the greatest example for the people that worshiped him because if they raped somebody, guess what? Well, Zeus did it. Really incredible when you think about it. Now, it's interesting. In the Roman Empire, even the word agape, the Greek word agape, be, received a new meaning. It was like, it also was infused with the love of God. It could mean, be used in various ways, but it's interesting because the way when Christians got a hold of that word, they use it often of God's love, a sold out kind of love. And it's interesting. Because the Roman world was tripping out on the Christians. And it's, it's because the Romans generally were indifferent towards suffering. They didn't value life, many of them, very much. And, and infanticide was widespread throughout much of the Greek and Roman world. And it's interesting because abortion, child sacrifice, infanticide, killing, killing, killing young children, uh, was rampant. Cicero, okay, And you might have heard his name. You were talking about different historians. Uh, He existed, you know, uh, 106 to 143, I'm sorry, 106 to 43 BC, writing just before Christ. And uh, he cited the 12 tablets of Roman law when he wrote this, deformed infants should be killed, okay? In the same way, Seneca, we're talking about top writers for Rome, wrote, quote, we drown children who are at birth weakly and abnormal, okay? And Plutarch, uh, he was an ancient writer, Plutarch. He discusses the, uh, the child's sacrifice uh, by the Carthaginians. And he writes about how, quote, they offered up their own children, and those who had no children would buy little ones from poor people and cut their throats as if they were so many lambs of, uh, uh, or young birds, while the mother stood by without tear or moan. People become so calloused. A lot like Romans 1, when they're given over to a depraved mind, when he talks about the antediluvian world. And the people were wicked. I mean, think about, you th- sometimes you think, oh, well, Germany and England, these were countries that existed with just a bunch of civilized people in the time of Jesus. No, they didn't. Germany was like the American Indians, had all kinds of tribes fighting each other, right? Even England, you know, you had tribes coming from Germany. You had people from, the uh, Vikings from other Norse places and, you had Romans, you know, everybody fighting against each other. And they're all sacrificing their different demon gods, you know. Until the Romans got impacted by the message of Christ, then people became, started to become literate. And it's really interesting when you study the beginning of England, you know. And I don't have time to get into all that, but it's really fascinating uh, to see. But it's interesting because... The Romans would talk about, we have the church fathers would talk about how they said of the Christians, look how they love one another. It blew them away. Jesus said, you'll be known by your love for one another. Amen? But what's interesting is we have a letter from Roman sources, their history, of Pliny the Younger, writing to an emperor, right, named Julian, uh, an emperor uh, named Julian, who was the emperor at the time, of the Christians. And... Uh, Julian wrote back really kind of uh, upset because the Christians were showing so much love and it made their priests look bad. He says, they support not only their poor, but ours as well, these Christians. All men see our people lack aid from us, meaning we're not helping people. And he proposes that they imitate, the priests of these pagan gods imitate the Christians and what they're doing. The Christians would take the babies that were put on a wall to just be destroyed or die, and they would adopt them. The Christians would take people, people's family members who were thrown on the streets because they had some kind of plague and risked their own lives and take them in and bathe them and love them and nurture them. Isn't that amazing? And this, this love spoke volumes because these people were able to say, Well, I love because my master loves. Because Jesus loves. Because Jesus said, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish by have everlasting life." And it's like, well, we, you were just like us. What's happened to you? I found Jesus, and the gospel just spread all over the place, guys. And that's what Jesus said would happen, didn't He? Doctor Jeremiah J. Johnston, in a book on the resurrection called Body of Proof, which I—it's a really good short read. It's a good book. Uh, he says, "Quote the Christian influence." was such that by the end of the 4th century a few centuries after Christ when the Roman empire itself rife with corruption was beginning to crumble philosophies of racism disappeared cruelty such as crucifixion and the gladiatorial games came to an end the statement of women and children the treatment of women and children improved and as time went on, no more intellectuals called for the infanticide in the name of eugenics or economics. Slavery began to recede. Isn't that amazing? you know who built the most the hospitals through ancient times? Christians. The orphanages? Christians. It's not like the Buddhists were going and building a bunch of orphanages and hospitals. Or the Muslims. The Christians were doing that, guys. This is stuff you probably won't hear when if you watch 60 Minutes or some secular news program because they don't want you to see history. When even to this day, when there's a huge catastrophe, who are the first ones typically on the scene bringing aid and help and compassion? It's not the atheists; it's the Christians. In fact, it's interesting when you think of slavery and you think of Wilberforce and Wesley. They were Christians that stood in the forefront of trying to stop the Atlantic slave trade. And now it's interesting that Christians brought an end to uh, slavery through their influence in the Roman Empire. Then guess what? The Christians were on the front lines and stopping uh, the movement as the, as the abolitionists, stopping selling people, kidnapping people, and then selling them in slavery. Uh, Christians stood up against that. But guess what? Secular philosophers like John Locke, you guys know him or have heard of him, Edmund Burke, okay? David Hume, right. Thomas Hobbes, Voltaire, the wicked Blasphemer of Christ. All these guys had slaves or, or sold slaves or defended slaves. Even in Islam, you can go to Muslim countries. You can go to Sudan or you can go to Saudi Arabia and still slavery is legal. Why not? Muhammad owned slaves and he sold slaves. And he had some horrible names he called slaves, his slaves, mocking them. Brothers and sisters, man, Christianity is different. That's because our Lord is different. He's not Zeus. Okay? He's not Allah. Okay? He's not some pagan deity. He's God in the flesh. And it's interesting because Wesley preached, they estimate, about 40,000 sermons. Road 250,000 miles estimated. That's 10 times around the earth. Now, come on, it's not in some you know, souped up limo. He did it on horseback. That's mind boggling. This man wanted to see people saved. And he wrote to Wilberforce, and we have his letter that Wilberforce received when Wilberforce was in the parliament trying to speak against slavery. And Wesley wrote this on February 24th, 1791. We have, Wilberforce had the letter. A week before Wesley died, listen to what he wrote. Dear sir, unless the divine power has raised you up to be, uh, to come against this slavery, he says, I, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing slavery. That execrable villainy, which is the scandal of religion, of England, and of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. Then he says, but if God be before you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Or be weary of well-doing? Then he goes, say, I say this, go on in the name of God and in the power of his might, till even America or even American slavery, the vilest that ever was seen under the sun shall vanish away before it. Your affections, your affectionate John Wesley. I love that. He's 87 years old and he's still fighting. He can't preach like he was because he's getting sick. He had this incredible constitution. I don't know how this guy did this for all these years. But he's not retired. That's why I say I don't want to ever retire. I'll just be rehired doing something like this. writing a letter saying, stop. You know, whatever. Do this. So there's John Wesley. And can you all know fired John Wesley was, like, the best evangelist probably after Jesus and the Apostle Paul. And all of he worked for us, like, I'm not going to give up because he wasn't making any headway. And he wasn't getting a lot of support. George Whitfield, you know, his, you know, another Methodist who was on the other side of the aisle theologically, defended us having slaves. Wesley says, wrong. And he is wrong. Now, when biblically, I mean, was, uh, biblically, half the world was enslaved. Okay, And biblically, you were warned that you couldn't kidnap someone and make them your slave. That was it, was a, it, was a, it was a capital offense. But if there's a war, you can kill the people or you can make sure they don't kill you and, and have them serve you. Or if someone uh, owed you a ton of money, the way they'd pay off legally is they could work it off and they would consider an indentured servant, a slave. And You could be born into it as well from that family. But you could also, how did God say you have to let them loose after seven years, even if they stole you a bunch of money? In the seventh year, this is the year of their freedom. But God was going to bring Christ in the world, which he did. Amen? And he was going to rise from the dead. And Paul, in the New Testament, Christ is risen, says, if you can get your freedom from your slavery, get it. Okay? And guess what? That Christian ethic influenced the world. But I just mentioned several secular philosophers. They're, they're the top philosophers in the, in the so-called Enlightenment era. Were all for slavery. It wasn't going to go away without the Christian influence. Do you understand that? You know what you know what the world would be like if Jesus had not risen from the dead? All kinds of people would still be enslaved. Do you understand that? The art wouldn't be nearly as beautiful as it is because think of all the artists, think of the biggest and most beautiful and most precious pieces of art in antiquity. It's Christian art, right? Whether you're talking about paintings or you're talking about uh, you know, stuff done by those who claim to be Christians or inspired by Christianity, whether it's the Sistine Chapel or whether it's da Vinci stuff or whatever. A lot of these guys claim to be influenced by Christ. The architecture. Scientists. Okay. Boyle. Okay. Uh, uh, Fairway. Uh, uh, Sir Isaac Newton. Right. I mean, you can go and look at the founding fathers of modern science and guess who they are. Galileo. Copernicus. I mean, you can go on and on and on. These guys all claim to be followers of Christ. I'm not saying they're all bona fide, born again Christians, but they all claim that. Why are they doing science? How come? Well, that's because. Well, what's that because of? Come on, man. Humans are supposed to be around 100 million years if you're an atheist. What took you so long? Well, that. Well, wait. What was going on in China, man? What was going on in Japan? There wasn't all this science by those folks. It was those who believed that there was a God and there were concrete laws of of science because he was a God of order and believed we could find out some of the things he's doing by looking at the natural world. Mind-boggling. Are you with me? I mean, think of the impact Jesus had. A hundred huge universities were started to preach the gospel and share the teachings of Christ. The teaching spread, literature and understanding. I'm talking about Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Dartmouth, Columbia, Oxford. Have you heard of any of those? These all started out as Christian universities, guys. What happened? Well, when you get away from the message of Christ and you allow Satan to come in, of course, then the message gets tweaked. And that's why we're called to fight against that. Uh, because of Christ, human rights and democracy was influenced a uh, hundred different countries that accepted human rights. Over a hundred countries now, okay? Uh, you got all these Red Cross. You ever heard of them? World Vision, Samaritan Purse, Mercy Ship, Salvation Army, all founded by professing followers of Jesus Christ. Are you still with me? Think about it. What are the big Muslim and atheist organizations that are saving people for the last 150, 200 years? Oh, they're going to pop up here and there because guess what? They see the Christians leading by an example. Like, guess what? The Emperor Julian. Because guess what? The Bible, right now, you know, a lot of people in the LGBTQ move, or LGBT movement and all these other letters now, it's getting hard to follow. Uh, they're like, you know, they'll come against, well, the women, I mean, now a man can be a woman and, you, and you're against women if you don't agree that that man's woman. Well, you have all this stuff going on now, which is really sad because it's getting twisted now. But guess what? Christians were on the forefront. They were the examples to save babies. Jesus said, let the little children come to me, even when his own disciples didn't understand how you ought to treat kids yet. And he said, no, let the little children come to me, for such is the kingdom of God. Amen? Paul, Jesus talked about one man and one woman, even though many of the Jews, that's in Matthew 19, believed in polygamy. And even in Paul's times, when Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, that a leader, a Christian leader, must be the husband of only one wife, a one-woman man. Well, guess what? The Jews in Pax Romana allowed, sorry, the Romans allowed the Jews to still practice polygamy. The New Testament's like, no, this isn't God's plan. In fact, the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter says that you treat your wives in an understanding way and that they're joint heirs of the grace of life. They're your teammates. They're just as human as you are. Jesus died for them just like he died for you. They're joint heirs of the grace of life. And Paul said, husbands, love your wives in the way Christ loved the church and lay your life down for your wives. Amen. That blew people away because women were like considered slaves by many men. We own you. That was the mentality. And this had an impact all over the world. I think that's quite amazing. In fact, it's kind of interesting to me, and I meant, the, the, what I meant to mention was Faraday uh, and, and Galileo and Kepler I didn't mention, Sir Isaac Newton and some of the other ones I mentioned. These were scientists that all claimed to be influenced by Christianity or Christ. And it's interesting because even the poster boy of atheism, Richard Dawkins, hates Christianity, full-blown atheist. Well, guess what? He said something that actually had a lot of truth to it, blew people away because he realized when he saw the Muslims blowing up buildings and people and suicide bombing and everything else, he said this. He actually admitted, he, in, a, in a rare moment of candor, he, candor, he was quite, uh, even though he said this begrudgingly, I'm sure, he said, quote, There are no Christians, as far as I know, blowing up buildings. I am not aware of any Christian suicide bombers. I'm not aware of any major Christian denomination that believes the penalty for apostasy is death. I have mixed feelings about the decline of Christianity because he hates Christ and so far as Christianity might be a bulwark against something worse. In other words, he's like, "Uh-oh, wait a minute. If we eradicate Christianity, what's going to happen?" Well, guess what? It's they try to do that. Stalin and Mao, they try to eliminate Christianity. Oh, yeah, there's people that have been killed in the name of Christ. But if you kill in the name of Christ, are you a Christian? No. That's like me taking your name and saying, Hey, Mary Lou, guess what? Telling people, I follow Mary Lou and go stab people. Would she be responsible for that? Well, how do you know? You don't know what she told me. Okay. Well, you're presuming she's innocent, right? She didn't tell me that. Jesus had turned the other cheek, right? So it's important that we get this. It's important that we understand this. Uh, in fact, it's interesting because guess what? Guess what? The Romans, I already told you, and I quoted different Roman philosophers and writers and historians, that they were just brutal it was, it, the Roman Empire, oftentimes, especially if you're a little kid and you were undesirable, was hell on earth. They didn't have to prove that you had an admiral. It's like, we don't want you. Boom. Like in China, you're able to kill your kids, right? Because you can only have so many. Even to this day, I mean, Stalin and Mao of China, and Stalin of the former Russia and came, the Soviet Union, these guys, okay, and other communist leaders in the last century killed over 100 million people. More than any of the religious wars, including Muslims and stuff, were were ever killed in, just in a few decades throughout that century. That's that's a blow. Mind. In fact, guess what? Hitler was like the old Romans in some ways. Not all. I'm sure a lot of great Romans, but I'm talking about the empires, the leaders. Is you know like Nero trying to destroy Christianity? Did you know that he was a social Darwinist? Okay. Mein Kampf means my struggle it was a struggle that we need to, as a nation, as, as a Germanic nation, be, show that we're the best and most powerful in the world. They were the most progressive nation in the world at the time, and, and in the European world. But guess what? When Hitler was, uh, Hitler admitted, he admitted the great impact that Christianity had on Europe, European culture. But guess what? He despised it, though. He despised Christianity because he claimed that Christian values were wrong for the German people because they were compassionate. Christian values are about having empathy and showing compassion and loving people. And Hitler stood for the survival of the fittest. And I want the German youth to be <laughs> warmongers so we can rule the world. So he was anti-Christ and anti-Christian Christian. And the history shows that they were taking down crosses and they were sticking up pictures of Hitler or the swastika instead. And he was actually into Eastern mysticism, Madame Blavatsky, all kinds of occultism as well. What I love about the Christian faith, guys, so what I'm saying is, guess what? That attitude a lot of people had where Christianity and love, no, we don't want that. That's what a lot of people have. That's the flesh, amen? But you know, the fingers of Buddha—they uh, were sent as a gift to an emperor in China during the Tang Dynasty, and they got lost for a while. Then, in 1981, they were recovered, and now Buddhists and come from all over the world to go visit to to look at bones from his fingers. Wow! And if you go, people go to the pyramids of Egypt because these house the the tombs of like King Tut and others, other pagan uh, rulers. Uh, Muhammad's tomb, because it's made of stone and his bones are allegedly in it, they visit, the Muslims visit his tomb. Uh, and the Taj Mahal was built in memory of the wife of one of India's shahs, people coming from all over the world to, to, to basically pay homage to, not worship, but, oh, well, some do, okay, uh, these, these figures. But I'll tell you what, man, when we go to Jesus' tomb, Nobody goes to Jesus tomb because they want to visit his bones. Amen. They go because he's risen and he's not there. Amen. Big difference. Our savior is risen. He is King of Kings and he's Lord of Lords. And it's interesting a young Muslim man in Africa was asked, "Why did you, by some Muslim, why did you become a Christian now?" He goes, "Well, it was kind of easy." He goes, "You come to a fork in the road and on one side, there's a dead man laying there. And on the other side, there's a guy that's alive saying, I know the way. I'm going to follow the living guy, you know, Jesus, right? So I love that. So how do you apply this to your life? Like Thomas, who said when he saw the resurrected Christ, the Lord of me and the God of me, you submit to Jesus Christ as your Lord, amen? Because Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says, if we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, And we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. We shall be saved. Submit to Christ and know that because he lives, we will live also. Amen. And the fact that he was risen shows that God accepted his sacrifice on the cross for us. Amen. So we can be forgiven. So you can know that you can be forgiven through embracing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And also keep in mind, no matter how bad or messed up your life has been, God takes the wicked and evil things that happened to you, even the things you've done if you've repented of them. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 23, verse 5, God turned the curse into a blessing. I love that verse. What we mean for evil, God can use for good if we turn to him. And he works all things together for the good, for those who love and are called according to his purpose. So embrace Jesus Christ and put your trust in him and your faith in him and ask for forgiveness for your past and now live for him. Amen. I love the fact that Jesus says, because he lives, we will live also. But in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if Christ has not been risen, then your faith is in vain. Our preaching is in vain. You're still in your sins. Might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. In other words, guess what? If Christ didn't rise, or if your faith is not in Christ, your life has no meaning. It has no meaning. But if you embrace Jesus Christ as a living Savior, we don't say eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. We say, praise God. I'm going to be raised up and be with my Lord and Savior forever. And I want to shine as a light His resurrection power so I can bring others to Christ and fulfill the commission that He's given me. Also, keep this in mind as another application, which I think is important as you apply this to your life, is that Jesus, the Bible says in Ephesians, also in Romans, that the same power which God used to raise Jesus from the dead is available to us. Amen? So if you're struggling with sin, you're struggling with challenges that are before you, you're struggling to overcome depression, you're struggling to overcome whatever trial that you happen to be in, guess what? In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, the Apostle Paul said that he is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above that which we dream or think according to the power that works within us in the church throughout all generations. In, the, in other words, this generation right now too, with us. His Holy Spirit is available to you, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. He wants to work in your life Rely on his power. Cry out to him in prayer and allow the work, the Lord to be with you and actually guide you through his word and strengthen you and empower you. It teaches us not to let his word go in, out, one out the, in one ear and out the other like the disciples, the apostles. Amen. Listen to every word he says and pay attention to what Jesus says and follow him. Amen. Well, Jesus said in John 5, 28 and 29, the day will come when all the dead will hear my voice. And they that have done good, meaning they've embraced Christ and their lives have fruit, will be risen to eternal life. But they that have done evil will be risen to eternal damnation. There's two resurrections. Make sure you are embracing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Amen? Because you will be resurrected to face God at the great white throne judgment. And that's the second resurrection. You don't want to be part of that one. You want to be part of the first resurrection. Amen? When Jesus comes back in Revelation 19 at the end of the age... When it's white horse, amen, it says in chapter 20 that those who did not take the mark of the beast, those who are following Christ, they'll be risen in the first resurrection and will not experience the second death which comes over a thousand years later at the great weight, throne judgment. You will be raised. And perhaps some of the best news for me is Jesus said this to his apostles to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all the nations, right? Preach the gospel to everyone. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And I love what he says. And lo, I am with you always, even at the end of the age. Know that Jesus is with you, that he loves you, that he created the universe, that he's given all kinds of evidence. And I just looked at one line of evidence today, and it's pretty strong, huh? You could look around, and when you see literature, when you see, even though people misuse it now, when you see science, when you see architecture, when you see how people talk about the rights that people should have. And, that, and by the way, our rights stop at somebody else's nose. You don't have the right to take their life, kill their baby, kill your own baby, right? But because everything's getting twisted today, you can realize, wow, it's interesting. Even the so-called woke crowd is riding the wave of what Jesus started, but then just twisting it. Isn't that interesting? Because if it wasn't for Christians, you know what all the woke people would be doing? They'd be cannibalizing each other killing their infants, not just the babies in the womb, if it wasn't for the Christian ethic, okay? You have a rich heritage in Christ, and the evidence that he's risen is seen every day. When you see order in society, right? When you see inventions, when you drive your car, you probably wouldn't be driving if it wasn't for Christianity, okay? Because of science and everything else that got developed out of Christianity. When I titled this message, Everyday Evidence, right? Or whatever I gave you, John. Do you understand what we're talking about, right? That Jesus talked about his resurrection was connected to the Gentiles being transformed. Now, did, did Babe Ruth transform the world and all kinds of things change because of him pointing up or pointing to the, you know? No, okay? Nobody's transformed humanity like Jesus did. But the thing is, he doesn't promise to transform people that do not submit to him. One day he said, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Amen. Everyone's going to do it. Everyone's going to confess. But it says in the Bible either in heaven or on earth or under the earth in hell. You're going to confess that Jesus is Lord. You're going to bow down in one way or another because he is God. We encourage you to do it right now. Amen. Make sure you're saved right now. So you bow willingly now and you know him as your Lord and Savior now. And you can have eternal life. I'm telling you right now, the greatest thing you could ever possibly do in your life and it'll make the greatest day you've ever had is by receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. So make sure you do that if you have not done that. And last time I talked to the brothers and sisters at the Sunrise Fellowship earlier this morning, is I also said, the greatest moment of your eternity will be when you see Jesus. Amen. Amen? But make sure you know him right now. Because there will be those who see him on Judgment Day. and will say, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire. Prepare for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25:41. You don't want to hear that. You want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Amen? And you can hear that if you become a follower of Jesus Christ. What do you have to do? Back to, John, back to Romans 10. This I end with the scripture. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord, that means he's your master. You're following him. You will be saved. It says that whoever believes in him right after that will not be put to shame. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever has your name all over it, because God's not partial. That's one thing Jesus showed through his resurrection that everybody's invited indiscriminately to come to him and repent and partake of eternal life and be with him forever and ever. That's good news. He has risen. And indeed, he has risen. Amen? Amen? Praise God. Let's all please stand as we pass out the cup and the bread.